Well, what a worthy name you have, uh, Father, and your Son, the Lord Jesus. What a great work of grace, and we would revel in it this morning. Father, we admit that it's not difficult for us to give lip service to some of these things, and it is the intention of our heart to want to be growing and for Jesus to truly be our all in all. And so will you use your word now to impact us and strengthen us in our walk and help us to have prepared ears and and clear thinking and uh, strong hands and legs to go out of here and implement into our lives a lifestyle of obedience, the principles and truths from your word that we gather each Sunday morning, that we might be a, a people that is pleasing unto you and through whom you are well pleased. We commit our time to you now, Lord. It's with joy that we reach for our Bibles. Use it well within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in First Timothy chapter 3 again, and this summer we've been working through a list of qualities uh, that are required of spiritual leaders in the church. And when you don't meet those qualifications, the Apostle Paul, instructing young Timothy at a church in Ephesus, is calling for Timothy to enforce these standards. We have uh, uh, a list here in First Timothy 3, and I invite you to turn there, and let's read our text. And what we've been doing is we've just been taking it in bite-sized chunks, taking the entire summer to just pick up a new quality each week, recognizing that there are standards for spiritual leaders in the local church, but also that these standards given by Paul to Timothy, to us, even for the church today, are minimum standards and that they are a call to all believers to walk in the truth and to live in obedience. All right? And so let's read our list and let's look at our next quality. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and now our phrase for today, not a lover of money. The Apostle Paul is telling young Pastor Timothy that if there is a leader in your church who's been appointed to spiritual leadership and he is a lover of money, that he's disqualified and he's not to serve. That if you're looking around for younger leaders or less experienced leaders to appoint into the eldership, into the diaconate, into the, the overseeing role of spiritual leadership in the church, the pastorate, that if they are a lover of money, they are not qualified. On our list have been numerous qualities, and I trust that you have been uh, having the self-discipline that as we preach and as we work through our list, that your mind is engaged and you are evaluating your own life. How am I doing in this category? What does this look like in my life? And once again this morning, we want to do that. We're speaking directly to those who would be spiritual leaders. We're speaking to the men. We're speaking to the women. We're speaking to the children. God calls all of us. This, these are the dynamics of the Christian life. Not to be lovers of money. And we'll see as we look elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible has a lot to say about money. This is an interesting quality here because 
if you looked in your notes of your study Bible, some of you might have, the word order of verse 3 might not be the same in all of your Bibles. I think the New King James translation, which is very popular, for example, does not put it in the same word order as the NIV or the ESV, where it has not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and then not a lover of money. There's a little bit of a different word order. And in some of your footnotes, you might see that it says in some of the Greek texts, the bodies of Greek texts that are used for translating into our English Bible in the First Timothy 3 passage, it doesn't even include in some of the Greek manuscripts the phrase, not a lover of money. And if that bothers you, when you see that footnote, there's um, some textual evaluation and criticism that goes on. I don't think we have to worry that our Bible's not accurate, particularly when Paul reinforces this And Peter does as well in other passages. And uh, you can, for example, turn the page. It's very close. So we can just turn to to Titus chapter 1. Let me remind you that we have a list of these qualities of what a spiritual leader is expected to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul, writing to Timothy, implement these in the church. In Titus chapter 1, Paul, writing to young Titus, another pastor who was on the island of Crete, And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, we also have another list that Peter reinforces. What are the standards for the spiritual leader in the local church? And we know that when we don't hold to these standards, we have problems. But in Titus chapter 1 verse 7, notice where Paul says to Titus in a very similar list as in 1 Timothy 3... Titus 1.7 says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent. And there he uses the phrase, or greedy for gain. Greedy for gain. Peter is going to use in 1 Peter chapter 5 a similar phrase where he's going to say that you should not shepherd the flock or oversee the flock spiritually. Don't do it for shameful gain. And uh, so, or the New King James uses the phrase there, for dishonest gain. What's he talking about? He's talking about men who, for some reason, in their role as a spiritual leader, are trying to gain monetarily or materially in their, in their personal wealth. They are personally trying to benefit from the body of Christ because of their spiritual leadership. Televangelists sometimes come to mind. You, you see them with their flashy jewelry. You see the, the 800 number across the screen and send your money. And then you find out that this money's not necessarily going to the ministry, that they're driving high-end cars and they have multiple garage full of high-end cars. They have multi-million dollar beach homes and they've even come under scrutiny from the government because of the abuse of a spiritual position. And this can happen even at a lower level in the local church where guys for some reason believe that when they're in a position of leadership, somehow they can gain. There's a number of ways that this can happen. At its worst, it can be embezzlement out of the offering plate and guys go to jail for this. I said at its worst, maybe it's not at its worst. At another level, people in spiritual positions are sometimes close to the elderly that they minister or or families through whom they minister in the church. And on occasion, you'll have opportunity to be given things or, or at the end of life, decisions are made and they want to give things to the ministry and that can be manipulated. And if you don't have character and godliness and spirituality, that won't always be taken appropriately if you're a lover of money. Money's a game changer. Would you agree with me on that? 
I remember back in the 80s when I was a youth pastor, there was a television show that was kind of a precursor to uh, reality TV. I guess Candid Camera was reality TV, wasn't it? And this was um, back in the early 80s, there was a show that ran for a while that was called Anything for Money. I don't know if you remember that at all. I don't think it lasted too long, but it was really pretty funny the way it worked. And one episode that I remember seeing uh, that was quite striking was uh, they would set up this scenario where a guy who was in the know was involved, uh, and then he would encounter the public, and then at their point of connection, the guy who was working for the producer and for the TV show would offer money to people to try to get them to do things right there in public that they wouldn't normally do. And the whole point was to show that when money enters the equation, people will change their behavior. They'll do things differently than they might. And I remember this one show. There's this guy, and it's early in the morning, and he's jogging in a city, and he comes in front of the big judicial center, a courthouse of a, of a pretty good-sized city, the big steps and so forth, and the big entrance. And it was already the time of morning when people were coming and going, and business was starting, and, and courtrooms were opening up. And this guy was just jogging. He had a pair of shorts and a T-shirt on. And uh, he stops a guy who looked to be an attorney, or he was in a business suit with a briefcase heading up the steps. And he asked the guy, hey, by the way, what time is it? acting as though he had lost track of time. He asks the guy what time it is, and the guy tells him, and then he he reacts, the runner does, like, oh, my word, I'm missing my appointment. And that then begins uh, the concept of the show, where the runner whips out his wallet from his pocket and begins to offer money to this guy to get his suit, his shirt, his tie, so that he can change right there on the sidewalk and that he can make this most important courtroom scene. And so as he starts rolling out $20 bills, at first the guy is trying to get away, but the thicker the wad gets, the next thing you know in the show, and who knows if it's reality or not, I would question that, but I'm such a bore, Janet reminds me regularly that when I say reality TV is really not reality, but anyway, there the guy is, he's taking his suit and his tie and his shirt off, and he's taking his pants, putting that guy, putting the runner's shorts on, and switches outfits with the guy so that the guy could go, what happened? Money was the game changer. Man, enough $20 bills started coming off the stack there. And somewhere around 250 bucks, the guy decided, this is a good deal. I'll get into my skivvies on the sidewalk for 250 bucks. I took that concept to youth group one night when I was talking about what the Bible says about money and how it affects us, how we think about it. And I set up a table with some stuff, and I started shelling out $1 bills to do things like eat a spoonful of mayonnaise or drink a cup of vinegar. And the kids had the same reaction at first. I wouldn't do that. But then you just start shelling out, you know, you get to about $4. And some guy like Jake Seitz says, I'll do it. I got it. At four bucks, I'll eat a spoonful of mayonnaise. Money changes everything. Well, this morning, I want us to ask ourselves what it is about money and how does this work? What is this dynamic? that we have to worry about. This is an elder that we kicked off the board once. Um, I've had complaints about this picture already this morning. I personally picked it out. So I'm sorry if I offended anybody with this picture or if it's distracting. Um, and uh, so maybe in a few minutes, just shut the projector off. And Because uh, I, I hear that it's... There you go. Okay. Denise doesn't like my picture. Um, I thought it illustrated pretty well what money does to us just turns us into something that maybe we don't even really want to be. 
The Apostle Paul in giving this instruction is very important in the church because our spiritual leaders have to have the integrity and, and the spiritual stability to be able to look at money and have it not affect their decision making. To be driven by a core value system that is biblical, not monetarily driven. And we live in a world that this creates very difficult issues. Money talks. The way I'd like to do our message this morning is I would like us to go to the words of Jesus in Luke's gospel in chapter 14. And I want you to listen closely. I want us to look at Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13, where Jesus is going to teach about money and what it does to people. And in this story, I believe we have the case study of a man who loved money. He was a lover of money and things. I want to draw some life lessons from this. And as we go through our story, I want to comment back to why the Apostle Paul put it on the list that a spiritual leader must not be a lover of money. We're going to see things in the life of this man that is an imaginary man. It is a story. It is a parable. Remember that a parable is a story designed for people to understand and hear and listen with interest, but then it has a punch. It has meaning to it, and you can draw truths from it. Jesus did this regularly. As we look at this story, and for some of you it will be very familiar, perhaps for others it is, it is brand new, Jesus is going to tell this story, and out of this story we will be able to discern some of the qualities and characteristics of a person in the negative that loves money, and why these things cannot be present in the life of an elder, a pastor, a Christian leader, and The equivalent as we apply it to our lives is why it shouldn't be in any Christian person's life. Let's read the story. Jesus is gathered with a crowd. It's Luke chapter 12, verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So you have the picture, group of people wanting to see Jesus, listening to his teaching. And all of a sudden, back in the crowd, some guy shouts out, Rabbi, teacher, tell my brother. And maybe he was in the audience and pointing to him. Tell my brother to give me more money out of the inheritance. Evidently, he was not the first in charge. He was not the oldest. In this culture, the older brother would have received a double portion even sometimes. Or he would have also been responsible to be the executor of the will. And perhaps their father had recently died and the younger brother felt like he was on the short end of the stick. Have you ever been there? Some of you know what it is to fight over money in a family. Some of you know what it is for relationships to break down. Because why? Because money's a game changer. We know it. And there's something about hard, cold cash that translates into meaningful things to us that can just turn our head and change our hearts. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And out of that, we get our very first point before we even enter the parable. And it is this. As we look at a case study of a man consumed with money and personal wealth, a case study of a man consumed with money and personal wealth, we see that the desire for money, number one, often divides and disrupts unity. A love for money and wealth, number one, often divides and disrupts unity. 
It happened in this home. Brothers divided. It's what's the cause for Jesus to tell the parable. And we learn our first lesson about money and even why the Apostle Paul told Timothy, a spiritual leader must not be a lover of money because why? A lover of money will divide your elder board. He'll divide your church. Why? He's going to care about the people with money and he's not going to care about the people without money. He's going to want to control the purse strings of the budget, and he's not, and he doesn't care what other people think. He's going to care more about money than he's going to care about ministry. He's going to divide the ministry. Number one, a love or desire for money and wealth often divides and disrupts unity. Jesus then responds to this man, but he said to him, Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And verse 15, and he said to them, take care, he's speaking to the crowd at large, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That gives us our second truth about somebody who loves money, and it is this. A desire or a love for money, number two, opens up the heart to idolatry. It opens up the heart to idolatry. How do we get that? In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5, Ephesians 5, 5, we have a list that the Apostle Paul wrote there of the qualities of people who do not inherit the kingdom of God. And Ephesians 5.5 says this, For you may be sure of this, Paul says. He's not waffling around. Be sure of this, Ephesians 5.5, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then the Apostle Paul puts a parenthesis, it's in the Greek and it comes out parenthetically, that is an idolater. He's talking about A person who is known to be covetous, that person is an idolater. He goes on to say, these people have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, we're to live in Christ a transformed life and those sinful qualities of the past are to be done away with. Jesus is equating covetousness, this idea that I want something so bad that it changes my thinking. It, it is something that you have that I want that I believe will make me happier than what God has provided for me already. That's covetousness. My dissatisfaction with God's plan of blessing for my life so that I look at you and I envy and I covet what you have to the degree that that becomes what I'm living for. It's idolatrous. This is slippery stuff. And our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are hard to calculate sometimes. You know, it occurs to me it doesn't have to be just an income or cold cash. Sometimes we'll look at people and we'll think, man, I work harder than that guy and I'm smarter than that guy and I've been around longer than that guy and he makes three times as much as me. What's that all about? Sometimes it might be just as simple as when you pull up in your neighborhood and the guy's truck across the road. And you're coveting that truck. Maybe it's golf clubs. Maybe it's an Amish quilt. Maybe it's gas-operated tools. Maybe it's a deer rifle. Maybe it's a countertop. What is it that you covet? What is it that... Boy, you really have to examine your heart, don't you? What is it that I don't have that somebody else has that I want so much. Now, I'm not saying that it's not... I don't think it's wrong to look at a catalog and say, boy, I'd really like to have this. I think it it becomes covetous when I want it so bad that I sin against you in my thinking, in my desire for wanting to have it. That's what the love of money and things will do. 
It opens up the heart ultimately to idolatry so that something in my life is more important to me and drives me more than my relationship with Jesus Christ. Money, guns, girls, guys, whatever. Jesus goes on then and he says, He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's a warning against idolatry. Then the last part of this preface verse before he tells his story is, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's good news. You know that? If you don't have very much, it's okay. You're probably blessed. God promised to meet your needs. Things can create really big complications in our lives, like lots of grass that you have to mow every week when it rains all summer. It's like, I really wanted this big yard, but now what happens? Your blessing becomes a curse. You just want it so bad, and then you get it, and then you say, wow, man, what do I do with all this? Some of you say, oh, I'd really like to try to be in that position sometime. But you need to know, principle number three comes out here, and it is this. The desire and love for money can be the driving force of one's identity. Let me say that again. The love for money and things can become the driving force of one's identity. Look what Jesus says. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, he's dealing with this guy who asked a question about money that he doesn't have, that he really wants, and he's so concerned about it, it's become the driving force of his life. This guy is now identified with money. In our story, the guy that he's going to tell the story about, the rich man, in the parable of what my Bible titles the rich fool, in there, that guy is totally identifiable by his agenda of wealth and money and things. And I don't know the man very well at all. I've never really met him. I've just seen him on TV. But take a guy like a Donald Trump, for example. Do you think that his personal identity is not parallel to his wealth and prestige? It is absolutely And it happens to us only on a smaller scale level. We might not have a big 747 jetliner with with our name painted down the side of it that we can go all over the world in so that it becomes our identity, my prestige, my money. But at certain levels, my whole life gets wrapped up in this and I I become the persona of somebody who is wanting things and money so that I'm driven. We see this magnified in the life of of NCAA Division I college football coaches, for example, or NFL coaches, who will even publicly on occasion be caught with a quote where they'll say, I don't care about anything but winning. And they have the marital record and the broken family history record to show that their whole life has been about a prestigious position. It's a drive for something. Their whole life identity is wrapped up in it. Jesus now goes on in the story and look what he says. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. 
That's basically the story that Jesus is telling of this imaginary guy. I want to make clear that the guy is not to be condemned for his industriousness. He's not to be condemned for taking whatever goods he has and wanting to multiply them and produce them at a higher level. I think productivity is to be commended. What we find out, though, is that this guy's motive, when he says in verse 19, is, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And then when we read verse 20, when God calls him a fool, we find out that his agenda is all about his personal comfort. His agenda is all about his luxury and ease and getting to a place in his life where he can stop working. He cares nothing about other needy people and he cares nothing about God. All he cares about is the fact that he can hit the beach by age 52, drink, sip iced tea, ride his jet ski, and take it easy. He's driven for something other than why God blessed him with all this stuff. The fourth point that we want to learn from our story is that, it, that as we read this story, 10 times we read I and my. Did you get that? I will do this and I will do that. If you circle it 10 times, he's going to say, I and my, this is my thing. Point number four is that a desire for money and wealth reveals the absence of humility in people. It will reveal their lack of humility, the absence of humility. People who are driven to be rich care about one person and who is it that they care about? It's themselves. It's number one. They are not bothered by the needs of other people. They are not bothered by trying to think through why God has blessed them to be a blessing. They are not bothered with the idea of stewardship. They just love the money and they tend to be very arrogant. Let's go back over to 1 Timothy and let's think about the fact that Paul is warning Timothy, do not put a lover of money in church leadership. Why? What are they going to think of? They think about the money. They don't think about the people and they tend to be strong, arrogant people always consumed with the money. Jesus goes on in our story. And notice that this man exposes his deepest priority. Point number five of a lover of money is that it will expose one's deepest priority. Verse 19, I've already referenced it. And I will say this to my soul. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. His personal long-term comfort is what it's all about. We notice, number six, that this love for money is also drives a false sense of security. It drives a false sense of security. Look what it says. He said, for many years I'm going to be fine. You see, the rich man imagines that his wealth is an unscalable wall, Proverbs says. But the wise man, the godly man, the spiritual man knows that it's the name of the Lord that is a strong tower. You know, I have an idea that we could be living I know that we're living in strange days in our country right now, and I believe that we're living in very precarious days. And I believe that our country, a lot like the, a lot like the house in Matthew chapter 6 that was built on the sand, could come down with a great fall. And we have people that lead our country who imagine our wealth to be an unscalable wall. Really, the bottom line is they are fools. They have ignored God and they believe in themselves and they are proud and arrogant and they're not humble. And what's going to happen is one day, it wouldn't surprise me, in the not too distant future, that there will be a vacuum of wealth in our country. We're going to find out then who has their eyes on Jesus and who doesn't. You know that? When, When you love money, 
It exposes the deepest priorities of your life and it drives one to have a false sense of security. Money is fickle. Money comes, money goes. It's unreliable. And a lover of money will make bad judgment trying to make more money. We go on in our story as Jesus wraps it up. And it occurred to me, God's going to call this guy a fool. He's going to be held accountable that night. His soul will be required of him, he says. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? You have all this stuff that you stored up. And this isn't in the text, but it seemed to make sense to me just in my own observation. Number seven is that a lover of money and things, that that is somebody who puts a lid on their generosity. If you love money, you are generally not a generous person. The love of money puts a lid on generosity. It never seems to occur to this guy that God has blessed him for, the, for a reason, and that is to be a blessing. It never occurs to him that he is to be a steward of all that God has given him. And so he's not generous. And so when we go back over to the Apostle Paul instructing Timothy to avoid those who love money, do not put them in a position of leadership. Part of the reason for that is, is that part of the supervision of the elders and the deacons is to take care of poor people and to help those who are in need. And people who control the purse strings at the leadership level will begrudge giving away the money. They'll think, we can't give that money away. We've got to have that money. There are board members, not in our church for which I'm thankful, but I've heard stories and I've been a part of other boards. There are board members that if there's not a certain amount of money in the checkbook, they go into a tailspin or a panic. They melt down. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, I don't know. The Lord sees the checkbook. It's all right. Well, trust in him. How about that? Oh, that's a novel idea. No, you see, if you're a lover of money, you trust in money. You find your security in money. And it puts a lid on generosity because you don't want to give it away because we might really need this on a rainy day. And I think it's going to be embarrassing for a lot of Christians and a lot of churches to get to heaven and God opens up their savings account and says, what were you doing with it? Why are you holding on to all this stuff? What were you going to do with it? What were you going to do with it? He gives it for a reason. And I think the spiritual leaders, and we see models of this in the early church, where they continually watched other ministries and they would pick reliable men out of their ministry. They would take offerings or they would take of their surpluses and and empower these men with their offerings and send them off to other churches, whether it would be Antioch or Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Antioch, and they would give them offerings so that they could take care of their brothers and sisters who had need. Listen, lovers of money at the spiritual leadership of the level don't care about other churches. They only care about this church, these people. Notice that this man's soul is now being held accountable. He never dreamed that he only had 24 hours left. He thought he was going to live a long life. I want you to turn really quickly as we wrap up now to 1 Timothy chapter 6 because I want to show you an interesting concept here that we're not going to camp on. I just want to show it to you. It's actually point number 8 on our list and it fits to me under verse 20 in our story of the rich fool He now is falling apart in the presence of God. He's made bad decisions. Point number eight, a lover of money. The reason we should not be lovers of money and things is that the love of money opens the door to calamity. It opens the door to calamity, spiritually speaking. And this guy was a spiritual wasteland, our rich fool in Luke 12. 
Paul is going to give specific instruction in 1 Timothy 6 about our money and how to handle money. And we're, when we get to 1 Timothy 6, we're going to have a much more detailed, extensive series on the Bible and finances that I hope you'll find very helpful. I just want to read very quickly 1 Timothy 6, 8 and on. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's the calamity. What did it? The love of money. For the love of money, verse 10. It doesn't say money. Money's not bad. It's our motives for that money. It's our, the level of our love for that money. Why, are you, why do you have it? What are you doing with it? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I would suggest back in Luke 12 that standing before God within 24 hours of his big new expansion plan was not on this guy's agenda and that he was full of pangs standing in front of God. He had no sense of God's ownership in his life. He had no sense of spiritual priorities. Why? Because he was a lover of money. Money turned his mind. It changed his heart. It opens the door to calamity for people. There are spiritual leaders who end up falling away from the church. Spiritual leaders who have to be driven out of leadership. Why? Because their love for money allows them to make sinful decisions. Embezzlement. Sexual immorality. Engaging in schemes and Ponzi plans. Christian community has seen its share of all of those things. Number nine, it defines one's view of eternity. Notice that this man, let's read 20 and 21 in Luke 12 again as we wrap up. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's a good question, isn't it? Ever walk around your house? Walk down in your basement? Walk in your garage? If you can walk through your garage? Go out in the shed and open the doors. Whose will these things be? Whose? You need to think about that. Why do you have it? Why are you storing it up? And when you stand before God and give an account, who's going to give a rip about all your stuff then? And are you using it for His glory? Or do you just love it? God said, you fool. Matthew 16, 26 says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Matthew 16, 26. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's not worth it. Our whole view of eternity can be defined by our love of money. Do you know that? How we view money. If you are a lover of money and it's what Paul knew and why he told Timothy, don't let him in spiritual leadership because a lover of money cares about one world. What world is it? His world in the here and now world. That's what he cares about. That's what money's all about. I care about it right now. You don't care about the next world, the heavenly world, laying up treasures in heaven. The Word of God tells us clearly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's the bottom line right there of why Paul told Timothy, 
Do not put spiritual leadership in place who loves money because it is impossible. It is impossible. You cannot do it. You cannot be the first person to successfully do this. It is impossible to love money and to love God or you will love one and hate the other. You'll despise one and follow the other. Well, I wonder if the Lord is challenging your heart at all. There it is. There's an example of a man who loves money. And I think that brings perspective, don't you, as to why Paul would say, do not put a lover of money in spiritual leadership. Any number of things. Their entire view of eternity is affected by their love of money. Their ability for generosity is affected by the love of money. Their life priorities are affected by their love of money. Their spirituality and godliness are affected by their love of money. Opening up their whole lives to calamity is affected by their love of money. These people do not belong in leadership. You know, this is a subject that's really easy to talk about. And it's a a real hard subject when you start to think about, okay, how does this fit into my life and where am I? We are going to talk more in detail about this when we get to 1 Timothy 6. Paul gets quite detailed there as to Timothy's instruction to the people about money. I trust the Lord will use this to jar your thinking. Help us evaluate our lives. What am I living for? As Randy Alcorn talks about the dash. Go to the cemetery and you look at the headstone and there's a date. It's a birth date. And then there's a dash and then there's a death date. And Randy Alcorn asks in the treasure principle, what does the dash represent in your life? What did you do during the dash time? It represents the span of time that God's going to give you. Are you a lover of money and just chasing an early retirement? Are you God's vessel, humble, seeking to please God through your resources, that God owns every part of my life so that the dash is something that I'm not going to be embarrassed about when I stand before the Lord? Let's pray. You know, it occurs to me that uh, when we fill up with Jesus that there's no room for other things, and I think that's part of the answer here. Some of us neglect our relationship with Christ to the degree that it is very easy for things to fill us up and money to drive us. Where are your priorities today, congregation? Where are your eyes fixed right now? On Jesus or on your agenda? How about the answer to the question, what good is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his soul? Are you right with God this morning? Are you living for the day when you'll stand before the Lord and give an account? I trust that you have a sense of defining reality in your life accurately that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life or you're at least in the fight, fighting the good fight, seeking to walk in obedience. It's a good time to tell the Lord what you're thinking right now. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you for another week as we go from here. The world seeks to press us into its mold and it's really easy for us to live the same kinds of lifestyles as people without Jesus. Father, would you give us the discernment and show us 
how to live carefully in this world and how to use our resources wisely and how to have a freedom in our spirit, not, not to be in bondage either to things or the opposite end of the spectrum of worrying about having too much, but that we would just know that balanced walk of, of just your ownership in our lives and, and your leading of your Holy Spirit, showing us how to manage, showing us how to be good stewards, showing us how to get out of debt, showing us how to spend wisely, showing us how to encourage one another, showing us how to support your work around the world. That we would be known as generous, godly, Christ-centered people, not as stingy, selfish, eye-centered people. Father, teach us, grow us, and learn us, I pray, and, and help us to learn these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.